listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. My name is Tyler Kirkpatrick, and if you don't know me, I am one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be up here today. Here's what we're going to do. We are going to open God's Word to Mark chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12, and we're going to see what God has to say to us. And then after that, we are going to witness a baptism at the end of this service. And so I hope that today we see the Lord. That's the intention. I'm sure that you'd agree with me that a good book, a good movie, You could even say the best books, the best movies, the best stories are those that have a clear purpose. And if you're sitting here thinking, no, I I love the chaos, you're sick. You don't. We've all sat down with something where we're like, "What what, what is happening? And for me, I'm just like, I'm done. I ain't got time. I shut it off. I want, I want a clear purpose. I want, I want that central focus. That, that I can look at, and as the, as the drama unfolds, I want to be able to say, yes, this, this is the thing that all of this is about. Everything that takes place is contingent upon this one thing. In The Lord of the Rings, it's Frodo Baggins taking the ring to Mount Doom to destroy it. In Toy Story, it's Andy getting back to his, Woody getting back to Andy. Well, yeah, same thing, both of them. They're both going both ways. It is what it is. It's been a while. It's been a while. But it's Woody getting back to Andy. And in the Titanic, it's Jack and Rose trying not to die while they fall madly in love with one another. Great tragedy will do that, by the way. Young men, if you're trying to find a wife, apparently sinking ships they do it so but there's just this there's this thing that propels the story along it's it's the framework for understanding everything that happens every character that comes into the scene is understood in terms of this central purpose this focus every interaction that these characters have it's understood either they give to the purpose or they take away from the purpose And it's what makes the best stories. But it's not just good movies. It's not just good books. It's also something that's really important in the Bible. And it's something that's so important in the Bible that that the, the gospel writer Mark records the words of Jesus where he lays forth his central purpose. The thing whereby all other things should be understood. And he does that for us in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through, or 14 through 15. And what he does here is he shows us what the central focus of his ministry is. So in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now, after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here's what I want us to understand. As we come into Mark chapter 2, into our passage of scripture, we are walking into, we are landing within a kingdom framework. 
what we understand by what Jesus has said through this gospel writer is that Jesus has broken into human history. His kingdom has, in a sense, come into the realm of human history. The reason that's important for us is because that means that not only what we will read here, but also the very lives that we live, we live them in a time when Jesus has come for sinners with the forgiveness of sin. I think at times we can forget the fact that we are not just living in a random time. We're not just living in the 2000s. We're not just outside of the 1900s. We're not just living in the time of Tesla. We are living in the time, in the moment, in the epoch when Jesus has come to bring to sinners the forgiveness of sin. This is the central purpose of history as we know it now. And so if we're to understand anything of Jesus, if we're to see him and to see what he does and what that means for us, then we must understand the time in which we live. If it's necessary for a good book or a good movie, then it is necessary for human history as well. And so Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has drawn near. What must you do? Repent and believe. Jesus has come to sinners with the forgiveness of sin, and it's the time in which we live. So let's look at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, with this understanding, and let's dig in. Here it says, speaking of Jesus, and when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, let's pray and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Well, Father God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it as a means of revealing what it is that you have done for us and what it is that you ask of us. Lord, we pray that in this time that you would use these words, that you would use this gospel, that you would use this encounter with Jesus to make us more like our Savior. And for our unbelieving friends, we pray that you would make the gospel clear to them and that they would see and that they would savor the truth that Jesus, Jesus has come to sinners with the forgiveness of sin. Father, we thank you for this truth. Be with us now. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, I have two truths that I want to look at quickly this morning. The first is this. 
The way we live ought to be motivated and defined by faith in Jesus. The way we live ought to be motivated and defined by faith in Jesus. So I think as this story unfolds, and when I say story, please don't hear that I think that this is some sort of fabrication or fairy tale. I simply mean that this is an account of Jesus walking about the earth. It's a, it's a story that we have of him. And I think this story in particular tells us what kingdom faith looks like. And again, that's the important reminder of understanding that in Jesus' coming, he is saying the kingdom has drawn near. Obviously, there's a first coming and a second coming. And so the kingdom is an already reality, and yet we wait the fullness thereof. But in this moment, in this kingdom reality, this scene is telling us something about what faith looks like and how it is to be lived. You see these men come up on this scene where Jesus is sitting here and he's teaching, and it is a packed house. There is no room, the Bible tells us. Every square inch is taken up, and people are sitting at the feet of Jesus, and they are listening to him. And Jesus is busy. He's there. He's preaching. He's actually left where he was before to come to this place to get a little freedom to be able to certainly pray and to meet with the Father, but then to preach the gospel and proclaim the good news of the kingdom once more. And so he's busy. He's an itinerant preacher. Everywhere he goes, he's preaching and teaching. And so here is Jesus. He's busy. He's occupied teaching. He's, he's about the business of the Father. And then this paralytic man comes onto the scene, and he is unable to get to Jesus himself. And so he has these four men who we can assume are likely friends or acquaintances, and they agree that they should go into this moment with this friend to see Jesus. But the way to Jesus is impassable. There's a crowd... And in Luke's gospel, he tells us that these four men carrying this paralytic, they try to get in the front door. They try to go, but, but they can't get in through there. And so in their desperation, they go onto the roof and they begin to dig a hole. And in digging a hole, they are causing a massive disruption. Jesus, again, is here and he's teaching. Can, can you imagine I think about it. To, to our sensibilities right now, if someone were to walk into this room and be like, hey, Tyler, I've got a question for you, we would all be like, who is this person? What, what, what is happening? And even if this person were to walk off the street and say, I, 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 would, I just want to know how to be saved, likely all of us would still be like, this is just not appropriate. And I would be like, Jared, Get this man. I, th I don't know what's happening. I think that that's what would happen. And yet, this is the scene that we find ourselves in. And so, as we look at it, everything in us probably says, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't go. Please don't dig a hole in this man's roof. Everything about it says give up. Everything about this scenario says give up. You, you can't get to Jesus. He is busy. And the thing that you will have to, to, to do to get to Jesus makes no sense. And yet, the faith that is honored in this moment is one that simply makes its way to Jesus. It's the thing that we're being taught in 
all of the detail and all of the drama of this scene, the faith that Jesus honors is one that simply makes its way to him. Is their faith bold? Yeah, I think so. I, I'm assuming the homeowner was like, man, praise God, this is amazing. I'm so thankful that this happened for this paralytic and praise God for all of this. Uh, by the way, who is fixing my roof? There is a boldness in knowing that likely there are going to be ramifications of this choice, even for the four men who are carrying this man. There is a boldness in saying, well, whatever happens, even if that is rejection, it is worth it in this moment to make our way to Jesus, to get ourselves, to get our friend to him. Is it a desperate faith? I'd say so. They dig a hole in his roof. Can, can you not just say, hey, excuse me, guys, can you, we have this man, uh, uh, by the way, I don't know what you're about, but this, d- like this, is, this dude's primed for a miracle. Anybody want to see a miracle? Make way. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, a miracle would be pretty sweet. Let's, like, let this guy in. Let's see what happens. Let's test Jesus. Yeah. But they don't have time for that. There, there's no time to make excuses or give reasons for why the crowd should part and they should get in. They just say, we have to get there. Let's go to the roof. Let's dig a hole. Let's lower him down. Let's try not to drop him. I think there's a boldness, there's a desperation. And so I want to ask, what, what, what should our faith be like then? Should we, should we have bold, amazing faith, faith that can move mountains? Or should we have a meekness of faith that just says, God, I'm a sinner, please save me. You're my only hope. I have no other choice. There is no other option for me. And I think the answer is this. The need for Jesus is the central focus. The faith that is honored is one that simply makes its way to him. The story is teaching us that the power of faith does not lie within faith itself. The power of faith lies within the object of our faith. It is is not really about what they did and did not do as they made their way to Jesus. It's that they got themselves to Jesus. He's the only one in this entire scene that can do anything that needs to be done. There, there is, yes, a boldness in getting to him, but yes, there is also a desperation in realizing if we don't get to him, we walk away the same. We're not told what this man believes. We're not told what the extent of his knowledge of Jesus is, or if he had met him before, or if Jesus had walked by him and, and the man was just too meek to cry out and say, Jesus, like, like some of the other paralytics or some of the other people that need to be healed. We don't know anything about the man. We don't know really anything about what he believed. We certainly don't know whether he had a developed theology. But what we're shown is that Jesus is pleased that the man's hope rests in him. That's all we're given. The man comes to him, and he's lowered, and as he's lowered, Jesus looks at him, and he's pleased with him. We know nothing about this man or what he believed, but the reality in his faith propelling him 
in his desperation of faith, his need of Jesus is honored and Jesus does what only Jesus can do. And yet, still, the drama unfolds. Jesus does really kind of the unexpected. Here comes the man. He's lowered down. And the scene is setting us up for a miracle. You know, if you've never read the Bible before, and this is like the first time, and everything is really exciting to you, maybe you're in Mark chapter... This is awesome. And I'm assuming the friends, because of their faith in bringing him to Jesus to be healed of his paralysis, and because of the paralytic man and his faith in thinking that he will be healed, so much so that he's like, you want to do what? Uh, All right, let's do it. Just tie it tight, right? Even, Even then, what Jesus does is he looks at him, And what we assume and think that he's going to do, as in, son, your faith has healed you, get up and walk. It it does not happen. The thing that we're supposed to assume, the thing that we're to expect to happen in this moment does not happen. Jesus looks at him and he says to this man who in his desperation has just been lowered through a roof because he's a paralytic, meaning everyone knows what this is about. Here's a man who is a paralytic. He's being lowered through the roof. Man, he has great friends. We're about to see Jesus heal this man. Jesus, son, your sins are forgiven. What? Now, I I, I think we can only infer what, what this must have been like for this man. But I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there because, listen, I've been living in a fallen world as a sinner for a little while now. Uh, And I feel pretty safe in assuming that this man was not like, God, Jesus, thank you. There is definitely a bit of this man that was likely like, thank you. And there's just this moment. There's this, there's this tension. And, and I, I think we're supposed to feel the tension. I think maybe even we're supposed to question the motives of Jesus himself. Why wouldn't you just heal the man? You, you've seen what they've done. You've seen the extent to which they've gone to be here in front of you. You know what they want. Why won't he just heal them? Well, I think there are two very good reasons. Number one, to show us that the greatest infirmity that this man suffers is not the paralysis of his legs, but the paralysis of his soul. You see, we're living in the time of Christ's coming. We're living in his kingdom. And what does he say? The kingdom has drawn near. What must you do? Repent and believe. 
the reason that he does not immediately heal this man is because if he immediately heals this man, we miss the fact that in this paralytic, we are meant to see that we too, in soul, are paralyzed by our sin. That we need, like this man, to come to Jesus, not just to have a better life, not just to have the, the, the stain, the residue of what it is to live in a fallen world to be wiped away from us. And you, and you do realize that every sickness is an effect of sin. That's not to say that everything that we suffer is because we ourselves have done a particular sin, but it is to say living in a fallen world, every sickness, every death is the result of sin. And so we see Jesus not just jumping to erasing the outward appearance of what sin has done in this man's life. He wants us to understand that what we see on the outside, as we see people suffering with cancer, as we see people dying untimely deaths, that is only indicative of what is happening in the souls of men and women. Oh, he's not just paralyzed on the outside. His heart is paralyzed. It is, it, it's, it's dead, the Bible says. And so the reason we don't get the thing we expect is because the thing we expect is the thing we want, and what Jesus realizes is what he is going to do is show us the thing that we need. He's going to show us the substance and the power of our faith. This is the repentance. What are are we to repent and believe in? Well, we're to repent in the fact that we are sinners, that we are dead in our sin, that we are paralyzed by our sin, but that we are sinners. Repentance is not just a feeling sorry about. Repentance is a a turning from. It's a changing of the mind. It's understanding that we can come to Jesus in our sin, and then we can leave differently than we came. But we would never know that in our coming to Jesus, we are sinners unless Jesus himself told us so. And so the reason he doesn't heal him immediately is, number one, to show us that the greatest infirmity is this man's soul, and number two, to show us that he alone can heal our paralytic hearts. What are we to repent of? Well, we're to repent of our sin. What are we to believe? That Jesus alone, that he is the only one whom we can come to to find the forgiveness of our sins. That he is the only one whom we can run to with our boldness or with our desperation and find healing for our souls. It's him alone. But I I do want to point out one thing, and I hope you saw this. In verse 5, it tells us that Jesus saw their faith. And I hope when you read that, you were like, man, I really hope he says something about this because this is pretty intense and I don't really know what this means. What is he saying? And what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me as an unbeliever? What does this mean for me as a believer? Well, let's think about it for just a moment. Let's take this scene and let's use our imagination and everything we know about this story as it sits right now, everything we've just learned, everything we've heard, everything we've read, let's imagine that that is what we know. But... Imagine that the story is rewritten after we know how it turns out. And the the four friends, they get to the crowd, they get to the situation, and they're like, okay, well, let's, uh, excuse me, sir, could you move over? And they try, maybe for 20 minutes they try, maybe for an entire day they try, but at the end, they lay the man down and they say, "Ah, 
listen, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There, there's, there's no way in. We, we can't get in. We've tried everything. It's, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that that would be the thing that would happen in this story. In fact, knowing what we know, we would say it's actually cruel. We would be sitting here, we would be, say, we would be saying, we, we, we know that there's another option. There, there is another way. Just go to the roof, dig, who cares, dig the hole. Lower him down to Jesus. He's, he's going to heal him. He's going to save his soul and he's going to make his legs work. Just go to the roof. None of us would look at those four men and say, yeah, 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 just, yeah. I mean, we get it, you tried, it's hot, you need water. Just walk away. It would be unfathomable. Jesus saw their faith. Their faith is a part of this. So what does it mean? Well, I do want to ask us this. And, and, I, and I, I, I want you to understand that I'm, I'm talking to you if you're a believer And I want you to know this first and foremost. If you are in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation for you. I don't say this to you. I don't say this. I don't ask this of myself to condemn us. I don't ask this to shame us or to make us feel bad. But when I look at this scene and I look at these friends and I look at Jesus looking at them and saying their faith has saved you, I have to ask this question. Can it be said of us that the faith we claim is one that brings others into the presence of the God who saves? Can it be said of us that the faith we claim is one that brings others into the presence of the God who saves? You see, there are four men who get this man in faith to Jesus. And there is a whole crowd standing around listening to Jesus, blocking his way. Is the way that you live your life bringing people to Jesus or inhibiting them from getting to him? The problem for us in our sin is that we are weak, we are frail, we are sinners, and everything that comes with it. And yet, if we are in Christ, we have been given the Spirit. We have been given the power of God within us. And what that does, as we look at Scripture, every instance that we see of what it means to be a disciple, Jesus' call to discipleship is leave your nets, leave your family, and follow me. It's, It's this man in his desperation coming and doing whatever it takes to get to Jesus. It's the woman at the well meeting with Jesus and then running into town and saying, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. This is the point. Our faith in and of itself will save no one. But our faith can lead people to the one who does. 
friends, that's, that's not just a sentence. That's, that's not just a saying. That is who we are because of the, the kingdom in which we now live. If Jesus came for sinners, to save sinners, to, to give them the forgiveness of sins, how are we to live our lives? The answer is in faith. Because a life lived in faith is one that lives in pursuit of Jesus. And friends, if we claim a particular faith and yet we live a different way around our friends, around our family, around our coworkers, are we leading them to Jesus or are we blocking their way to him in our religious zeal? The second and final point is we can come to God because God has come to us. Oh, glory. So there is a lot going on here. The drama continues to unfold. We have the angry scribes, these religious leaders. They are just indignant over the fact that Jesus would look at anyone and say, your sins are forgiven. Now, let's not be too hard on them for just a moment. Like There there is a sense in which these things are veiled to these men. They don't know what we know. So we can't just look at them and be like, how dare you? I mean, maybe most of them were like, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, yup, you're right. You You should just hang on for a little while, tag along, stay with me. If you think only God can forgive sins, then you're going to want to hang out, right? But they don't know that. But, but a part of this is their anger. But, but their anger, we'll learn, is the very anger, the very rage, the very, the very blindness that will send Jesus to the cross to die. So you have this moment where they're just, they're just mad, they're indignant. We see Jesus' omniscience. He, he knows that as this man is being lowered down, he knows. And, and here's, here's, okay, this is the beauty of, of God's sovereignty and salvation. He knows what is in this man's heart. And so we look at this and we're like, oh, yeah, well, like, what's, I mean, does, I don't know, does this dude even believe? Like, what does he really believe? I, I don't know, but I'm going to trust Jesus. That this man came with the right heart. He came with the right faith that was actually, in fact, a faith that led to salvation. I'm just going to trust him. Do you want to know what he believes? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But he knew enough and he knew the right things that Jesus was pleased in his faith and he saved him of his sin. Wow. But then he knows something else. He knows the thoughts of the scribes. And I don't think he's just, you know, doing like an awesome party trick where he's like, I can see your face and it seems you're upset. Like he literally tells them what lies within their heart. The, the questionings, the anger. And so on display here is Jesus' omniscience. And it's really important. What we see happening here in Jesus is what we see in Hebrews chapter 1, where we see that he is the radiance of God's glory. It's what we see in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following, that he is the fullness of God. He is the very nature of God himself. We see John chapter 1 here, that this is the word made flesh, that this is the one whom before the foundations of the earth existed and through whom all things were created. This is God. That's so important. But it's not even the thing I want to linger on. It's really, in many ways, it's, it's just a detail here. We see two miracles. 
the first and the most important being the forgiveness of sins. This man has just, okay, so wow, wow, wow. A paralytic, he is on the floor and he raises to walk and everyone marvels. Okay, we just saw a dead man be brought to life. The, the greater miracle by far is the forgiveness of this man's sin. And yet he, he gets up and he walks to validate what God has just done in this man's soul. And then you see the crowd just standing in awe. This is, this is amazing. They, they, they can't even believe all of the things that have just happened. It's, it's sensory overload. I mean, we're here. We got a space. Like, you know, it was amazing. I'm, I'm up here, like, right at the stage. And I'm sitting at the feet of Jesus, and he's teaching. And you'll never believe it. The next thing you know, no, I'm serious. Listen, a man came through the ceiling. No, I'm not lying. Seriously, this is what happened. You, okay, well, you weren't even there. I'm serious. This happened. I mean, and it's just like, it's not even something that you can believe as you're telling your friends in Capernaum, right? No, and seriously, then the next thing he forgave him of his sins, then he walked out. It was insane. And then the scribes were so mad. It, it, was, it was crazy. You just have to be there. So much happening. And still, there's something more amazing. Turn with me to Jan Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Here, Daniel says in a vision, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In verse 10, Jesus looks at these people and he says, so that you may know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. In that little phrase right there, Son of Man, I don't think we can even... even plumb to the depths or reach the breadth of those three words. There, there's just too much. And even in Daniel, we're going to a vision and we're seeing like, this, this is him. This is the one who came to the Ancient of Days and was given a kingdom that will never pass away, that will never be destroyed, that will stand for all of eternity. And the purpose of that kingdom was to not only have a dominion, but to gather a people into it. A people that will get to live in this eternal kingdom. That is the kingdom of the Son of Man. The kingdom that Jesus has just brought into human history. How does he gather this people? By preaching that the kingdom has drawn near. Repent and believe. The Son of Man is the forgiver of sins. We can't comprehend it. But what do we take away? What is certainly for sure is that in the coming of Jesus' kingdom, God himself has come for sinners. This amazing, big, beyond comprehension God has come to sinners. And I just want to say, if you're sitting here and you're hurting because of the way that you grew up and things weren't perfect, I just want to say, I know how you feel. 
I don't have the perfect home life. I don't have all of the things that you, you want and you wish for as a child. Uh, friends, and I don't, I don't say this, I'm just going to say it. My mother has not spoken to me in five years. And I don't know why. We live in a fallen world. But I serve a God who came to me in my sin to forgive me of my sin. There has never, ever been a more gracious, loving, tender parent than God. You know, the real scandal of this scene is that Jesus owes this man nothing. And yet this man is brought lame and he leaves walking, he arrives dead and he leaves alive. Why? What does this man possibly have to offer Jesus that could merit the death of Christ? You're telling me that Jesus will die for him? This is the man who interrupted Jesus' sermon. Like what, what, what does Jesus possibly owe you to look at you knowing what you need and yet forgiving you of your sins and then healing you and letting you walk away? The answer is so important. The answer is so important. What does Jesus owe this man? What does he owe us? What, what have we done to merit the death of Christ? Do you want to know what this man could offer Jesus? Absolutely nothing but faith. The marvel of Jesus' kingdom is this. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Luke tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Well, friends, the kingdom is here. Repent and believe. Why? Because the Son of Man came for the purpose of seeking and saving the lost. So as we close, I think in the end what we see is that the paralytic man came to Jesus because in love Jesus had come for him. We think that the paralytic and his four friends made their way to Jesus, but Jesus was exactly where he was supposed to be so that they could get to him because he was there for the paralytic. Jesus was waiting for him, knowing everything that he would do for this man and knowing what is beyond this passage, and that's that his sin, oh, it's forgiven. Well, what, what, what happens to it? Does it just go up into the air? Does it just vanish? No, it will go to the cross of Calvary. It's not just forgiven. It's forgiven because Jesus will take it and he will die with it. He will suffer God's wrath for it. And yet he still looks at this man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Hallelujah. 
Are you living under the crippling weight of your sin? Oh, friends, we know what it's like. We know what it's like to live under the weight of our sin. I just want to tell you this, don't. Don't do it. Don't live with that weight. Don't walk out of this room paralyzed in heart. Don't walk out of this space dead. Come to the one who can look at you in your sin, the one who came to you, the one who came for you, the one who is standing before you now looking at your sinful face and will say to you, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Do it today. Do it today. And and believers, let's live our lives in a way that leads people to this truth. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Be honored. Be glorified. Lord, do this work in us. It's your work. You can only do it. Help us. Save us. Father, as we live in this kingdom, awaiting the fullness thereof, embolden us. Give us courage. Give us grace and mercy and tenderness to point people to Jesus. And Father, for our unbelieving friends, draw them now. Show them your grace and your mercy. It is in Jesus' name we pray.